Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hello and welcome back to the Highway to Hoover podcast presented by Broxgap Brewing Company in Hoover, Alabama. Highway to Hoover, the production of D1 Baseball and SEC Extra, joined by a special guest today. I don't have a catchy name for this series that we're starting this season here at Highway to Hoover. I thought about calling it the local flavor edition of the Highway to Hoover podcast. I don't know. Maybe I'll come up with something better as time goes on. But for now, we will just uh, use that as a placeholder. Today, I'm going to be joined by Matt Jones of the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. We're going to talk about primarily the Razorbacks, a good weekend at Globe Life Field, 2 and one record there. We will get into that. We'll also just talk some general stuff. It's been a newsy preseason, for better or worse, with Arkansas, with the news of Jackson Wiggins going down, and obviously that's going to have both short-term and long-term effects on their pitching outlook and their season outlook in general, so excited to get into it. Matt, thanks for joining us. I uh, I would say longtime friend of the program. I guess that's more of just a longtime friend of me and all of my different uh, venues. I've been covering college baseball for a while now, but I appreciate you joining us. Appreciate you having me, Joe. I guess I'll start with the broadest possible question, and that's just your overall thoughts on the weekend for Arkansas at Globe Life Field in Arlington. It was a good weekend for them because they won two games. I think you stopped short of saying it was a great weekend because they also had a 12-run loss to TCU. You beat Texas and you beat Oklahoma State. You've got to feel good about your opening weekend overall, I think. The bullpen against TCU, I think, was a little bit shaky. I think you, you do have to look at it, though, that they were throwing a lot of first-time pitchers, guys that were making their debut either in a college game or maybe in a Division One game, some guys that had transferred in from junior colleges. And TCU was really on a roll there all weekend. Even the Missouri loss, they lost 9-8. to eight. Their bats were alive in the entire weekend in Arlington, and, and they just played an outstanding game, I thought, especially over the last four or five innings on Saturday. But and some of this isn't so much just the first weekend. Some of it is just observations from watching Arkansas scrimmage for three weeks prior to going down to Arlington. I think they've got a really good starting rotation, at least with Hagen Smith as number one and Hunter Holland. He's probably going to be their number three starter right now. We saw what Will McIntyre can do last year. He's a different kind of pitcher, though. And if he doesn't if he doesn't throw balls down low in the zone and elevates them, he doesn't throw hard enough that it's going to be, it could be a, a night like what they had against TCU. And I think you just expect that from time to time with the type of pitcher that Will McIntyre is. But he'll turn around and he'll give you nine strikeouts at the College World Series, too. And he's going to have his nights where he's on and he'll have his nights when he's off, just like any starting pitcher will. But I think their rotation really is pretty good this year. And I think people are going to be surprised to see just how good Hunter Holland is in that number three role. He's a transfer from San Jacinto in Texas. Big left-hander. I think he's six foot five, six foot six. Throws a real nice slider to go along with mid-90s, 96 type fastball. You get that from the left side, you're going to you're gonna get a lot of strikeouts. And he was, I think, one of the top strikeout pitchers in junior college the last two years. And I think that's going to translate. I think he's really taken a step since he got to Arkansas in the fall. And then offensively, I think that their top four, probably five or six in the order, is going to be really good all year. It's going to be interesting to see what they do at the bottom of the order. And I don't think that it's like any team. We haven't seen the finished product by a long shot as, as far as the lineup goes. There's going to be tweaking and you know, different players getting their chance in the lineup. But I'll tell you that one, two, three, four, especially 
with Tavian Josenberger as a leadoff hitter. Peyton Stovall is the number two. They moved Jared Wegner to number three for the Oklahoma State game. And then you've got Brady Slavens in the cleanup spot. I just don't know that there are a lot of teams that, that are any better, at least. There might be some teams that are as good, but I think that's got the potential to be a really nice production spot for them in the lineup this year. And then you got some other guys who have shown flashes and scrimmages. We didn't show it in all the games down there in Arlington, but it was a good weekend for them. I guess it's a long-winded way of saying that. I think that they've got to be pleased going two and one against three of the top four teams in the Big 12. Yeah, certainly a strange weekend too when you consider that you get a Friday, just a real close game with Texas and then consecutive blowouts for Arkansas, one good, one bad. Then you look at the weekend Texas had where that was their best showing really. Like they looked pretty flat the rest of the weekend. So just a strange weekend with how things played out there. I wanted to ask you on on Wegner, the breakout weekend for him. He gets named SEC Player of the Week by the conference. To what extent was this the kind of player that you saw in the fall and in the preseason? And secondarily, like what were you hearing from the coaching staff about what he was going to be right away? Not so much in the fall. He had an oblique injury in the fall that slowed him down. And But we had heard about him, what they, I guess what they had seen from him, maybe before they got into full team practices. And I remember when I asked Dave Van Horn about him for the first time, I think this was late August, he said, just wait till you see this guy hit. They knew that they had found something in him. And whether it's Van Horn or Nate Thompson, the hitting coach, Bobby Werner, who's their volunteer coach, they all say the same thing. It's like, how did this guy not go to pro baseball last year? How did the pro teams let him get away? If not in the draft in the signing period for free agents. They're astonished that he made it to campus, that he's still playing college baseball. He's 23 years old. It's a really good approach. And the swing is, it doesn't look violent, but it is violent. You know what I mean? He had three swings down in Arlington that registered between 111 and 115 miles an hour in exit velocity. Had some others that were up there too, 107, 108, those types of swings. Had a 442 foot home run, not to straightaway center field, but it was pretty close. It was into that left center field bullpen that's right next to the batter's eye. And yeah, it was impressive. And it wasn't just the power either. It was the moments that he got his hits. They're playing Oklahoma State on Sunday. Let me back up. They're playing TCU on Saturday night. TCU scored three in the top of the first inning. Arkansas puts a couple of runners on. Wagner comes up. It's a three-run home run and ties the game. They play Oklahoma State on Sunday he comes up in the second inning. It's two to nothing. Bases are loaded, two outs. Gets a bases clearing triple to the opposite field. Comes back up in the third inning. Arkansas scored a couple more runs by this point, maybe three more. And uh, is, is in there on base. And uh, I'm sorry, Stovall is. Slavin's backed him up. But uh, two-run home run to the left field porch. And it's these are all two-out two hits that he's getting. And they're big-time hits, two runs, three runs. And so it's not just the power, it's the it's the timeliness of the hits that were just really backbreaking, I thought, for Oklahoma State. That game doesn't turn out 18 to 1 if they can get Jared Wegner out in those two situations. But to answer your question, what have we seen from him? We've seen that in scrimmages. It's when there are runners on base and especially runners in scoring position, he's doing something. Maybe drawing a walk, maybe taking, maybe taking a pitch off the hip, but he's finding a way to either get on base, extend the inning, move the runner, something more often than not. And I just think he's a really good baseball player. I don't see him. He's, he's not going to have a 2000 OPS all year, obviously, but I don't see him slowing down a whole lot. I think that this is a guy who was a legitimate 320 plus type hitter. I really do. I just, I think it's very consistent. One of the things we didn't get to see in Arlington either is he can run the bases pretty well. Really good, just full profile player. He's going from really one of the toughest environments to be a 
power-based hitter. It's not just that he played at Creighton and played his home games at Charles Schwab Field, which is notoriously a pitcher's park. It's that he's playing in that park at a time when the weather is bad and cold. And then it's not like the rest of the Big East is a bunch of warm, hitter-friendly <laughs> climate environments. So he's going from that to going to a much more conducive environment in the SEC and some smaller ballparks and warm weather generally. And I know in Fayetteville, it'll take a couple of weeks for it to really be anything approaching warm there. And yeah, I'm fascinated to see. I mean, he could be an SEC player of the year type of guy production-wise if he, obviously, if he continues what he did the first weekend. But I think just more generally, could certainly be in that conversation. A couple of related questions on the mound for you. One, let's go back before we look forward to the Wiggins news. To, to what extent were you, because I had heard a lot of positivity coming out of Fayetteville about Wiggins. And I think we all are, we're just, I don't want to say skepticals, maybe not the right word, but just we're optimistic, but maybe had some caution about it because he's been such a big arm and such a big talent for so long. And that hadn't resulted in him being the type of pitcher that I think we thought he could be. To what degree did it seemed like a breakout might've been coming for him. How much did the hype that I was hearing match what you were seeing with your eyes leading up to his injury? I think what, from what you heard from the coaches is that it was just more consistent. What we've seen with Wiggins over the first two years is that he might look great one week for five innings, six innings, maybe even a little bit more. And the next week he can't make it out of the first inning. Just real inconsistent is, is really been the, a lot of potential, but a lot of inconsistency too. That's really been the story of his first two years. And he didn't play summer ball last year. He went to Little Rock and worked out with the Dustin Mosley, the former major league pitcher. Grew up in Texarkana. He was committed to play at Arkansas, ended up going pro instead. And a lot of the central Arkansas pitchers who've come up from the Little Rock area have worked with Mosley at different points. And there have been some times, Josh Alberius is one that I can remember from about eight, nine years ago who worked with him one summer and came back and really looked a lot different when he got back to campus for the for his final year. And so I think that Wiggins and Mosley had done some things that had made him a little bit more consistent. Matt Hobbs, Arkansas pitching coach, told me in the fall, he said, Jackson Wiggins has been maybe our best pitcher. And that's saying something on this staff because they like the depth of this staff. They like the quality of the staff. And it's one of those things where we'll never know what his season was going to be like from what they had seen in practices, what they had seen in their bullpens and all the things that they do internally. They thought that he was on pace for the best year that he's had at Arkansas. And, and they thought he was going to be in the starting rotation. I don't know if he would have been the number one pitcher or number two. I think that certainly he would have been that. And the fact that he's not pitching now is what is why you have Will McIntyre and Hunter Holland in the rotation. I think the thought was that maybe one of those two might be a midweek starter. They might be a long reliever, but I don't think both of them were going to be in the starting rotation before the injury to Wiggins. And so it's interesting because Arkansas has gone through this two years in a row now. Peyton Paulette had Tommy John before last season, and they were able to withstand that. And they got within a victory of playing Oklahoma for the national championship last year. And I think they've got more depth on this staff than they had on last year's staff. But what I think it does is that it just it magnifies the development of your freshman pitchers. So because those 70, 80 innings, 90 innings, whatever he was going to throw, you've got to you've got to replace those from somewhere. And what happens if some of your frontline relievers, maybe they throw a little bit more, maybe they throw in different situations. But I think that at the end of the season, how are these guys like Gage Wood, a freshman right-hander, how are they throwing? Ben Bybee's one who's going to start in the midweek this week for the Razorbacks. I go on and on. Parker Coyle's a left-hander who threw the other night in Arlington. There's a lot of young pitchers on this staff. I think that their development is going to be really key to how far Arkansas can go and replace those innings that they lost with Wiggins. 
it, you reminded me there of a caveat I meant to give that for listeners, we are recording this before Arkansas's midweek contest. And so if there's news that comes out of that one way or another, we that that's why we're not discussing it just for yeah. the listeners there. But yeah, I figured that was worth a, worth a mention there. But Wiggins will be an interesting, I think it'll be an interesting story to follow even as time goes on, because I think one thing we've learned is that times have changed in terms of, and I'd be interested to see the frankly, data on this. There was a time where if you have an injury like that going into your draft year, teams are just going to back off and you'll probably end up back at college. Mm -hmm. At his turn, I think Peyton Paulette's a great example. And there are others that I'm just not coming to mind right now. But that'll be interesting because if you're Wiggins, there's also the a little bit of a temptation to be like, hey, I could maybe be a front of the first, he's a front of the first round type of arm. But if he's more consistent, like that, he, he could be that kind of pitcher. And so there's, I think that's just going to be an interesting one to watch because I could see that going a couple of different ways relative to like his professional aspirations versus coming back to Arkansas. I don't think the elbow injuries scare the proteins as much as shoulder injuries do. Right. I feel like shoulder Agreed. injuries are a lot more detrimental to pitchers. And I think, I think we've almost gotten to the point where these pro teams would rather go ahead and draft a guy and get him in their system and rehab the arm where they can oversee the end of the rehab. And Peyton Paulette, like you said, is a great example. He was a second round draft pick, I think last year, ended up getting over a million dollars in a signing bonus. And that was without having thrown his final year. And of course he didn't get to throw much in 2020 because of COVID. And so I almost think with some of these pitchers, it's like the unknown helps them from a financial standpoint. And so it, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Wiggins, but it would not surprise me at all to see him get a pretty nice sum of money thrown at him in the draft this year and end up going pro and finishing up his rehab in a pro system. Yeah. And certainly couldn't blame him in that case, because there's also the uncertainty aspect from the player standpoint, right? Yeah. You know, you so. come back and you don't, and you don't look like you did before. And then you really have cost yourself a lot of money. I can think of some pitchers here at Arkansas who they turned down a lot of money to come to school. They had elbow injuries and they never ended up going pro, but it's, you got to take care of yourself financially while you can. And you can't blame these guys for, for doing what's best for them. And I guess I'd be a little bit surprised if he comes back, but we'll see. Yeah, absolutely. That would t time, uh, time will tell. But yes, as the kids would say, secure the bag, folks. If you, if you get that kind of money thrown at you, it, it might be time to to move on. As much as I love college baseball, you got to make that move. Quickly on Hagen Smith, just how good did he look in his start to open the weekend? And was what you saw from him on Friday kind of a continuation of the Hagen Smith you saw in 2022? Or did it look like perhaps a more souped up version, for lack of a better way of putting it, of Hagen Smith? Yeah, it's a better version of Hagen Smith. And David Pierce was talking about this, the Texas coach, after the game that last year he was a pitcher who had some trouble keeping it in the strike zone, would go to a lot of full counts, walk some batters, and that wasn't happening in the first four innings against Texas. I thought the big story of that Texas game was that you had Lucas Gordon had thrown 73 pitches through four innings and Hagen Smith had thrown 45, and they're throwing to the same strike zone. And the efficiency that Smith showed versus Gordon, who's a really good Big 12, all Big 12 type pitcher, I thought was really drastic. And his velocity was 96, 97. I don't think we saw that quite so much last year. When Smith moved to the bullpen for Arkansas at the end of last season, and I think now he started a game in Omaha too, but they used him in the bullpen quite a bit in Stillwater and in Chapel Hill and even in Omaha. And I think some of that was just his arm was getting tired. He could have made the USA national team last year. He called and said, hey, guys, my, my arm's tired. I really need to shut it down. And um, so I think with him and Brady Tigert, who came in and looked outstanding at the end of the Texas game, retired all five of the hitters that he faced in a, a really leveraged situation. I think with both of them, what you saw was a couple of guys who are a year older now 
and whose arms are fresh again. This is this is the freshness we saw from them early last year when they were. But now you've also got that year of maturity and that year of added strength, and maybe in in some cases with some of their pitches a little bit extra velocity. And I think Smith looked really good, and he looked every bit the part of a number one starter on this staff. And again, I talk about Hunter Holland, who I'm really high on. The fact that that Hagen is starting over a pitcher like Hunter Holland, I think Holland could be the number one starter at a lot of different SEC programs. And the fact that Smith is their number one starter, I think, tells you something about just how good he is right now. Yeah, that's a great call. Aaron Fit, at my colleague at D1 Baseball, saw Arkansas in the fall and was came back raving about Hunter Holland. And the fact that had Wiggins been healthy and gone in there, the fact that Hunter Holland might have been a, a swing guy, if you will, goes to show that you talk about the increased depth of this staff. That was even a, a possibility. Something on the table shows you what they're working with. I wanted to ask you about team defense. It seems with plugging in John Bolton at shortstop kind of felt like a move to optimize the defensive alignment there, considering there were other options that might have been a little more offensive. The Bolton can't handle the bat. He can. He can. I just there's not as much physicality there as you would typically get with an SEC player. And the high level of expectation coming off of having had Jalen Battles there, and I don't think he's Jalen Battles defensively skill wise, right. but certainly a steadying influence. One air all weekend for Arkansas. That's obviously good. What do you make of that defensive alignment and John Bolton specifically his ability to stick and prov- maybe provide enough on both ends to be able to be the guy all season. I think that with Van Horn's teams, what I've always observed, and this is my 15th year covering Arkansas, is that catcher and shortstop especially are positions where you put a premium on defense than offense. You might have guys like a Michael Turner last year who were pretty good offensive players too, but you don't want to get yourself beat with a catcher who you know is letting balls get by him. You don't want to get beat with a shortstop who might be in there more for his bat. They only had one error all weekend. There were a couple of plays in the TCU game that weren't errors because you can't you can't put an error on a, an assumed double play. But had they been able to have a cleaner exchange there between their shortstop and their second baseman, maybe some of those big innings that TCU had goes a little bit differently. And there was a little bit of that. It looked like he bobbled some balls a little bit that you just – it's early in the year. We'll see how this goes. And from what I've seen from him, though, in, in the preseason is that he's not a big defensive liability. I think he is a pretty sure-handed defensive player. And the thing that I think is unfortunate for these players this year is that the entire year, there's going to be this conversation of, oh, Jalen Battles would have done that. Oh, Robert Moore would have done that. Caden Wallace would have done that. And it just goes to show you how, you know, it, it, this isn't a bad infield. It's just last year's infield was an elite infield. You just don't see college infields like that very often. You know, Robert Moore won a gold glove. I'm of the opinion that I thought Jalen Battles probably should have won a gold glove at shortstop too. He had a couple of errors that that probably kept him from winning a gold glove last year. And they're errors because he can actually get to a ball where there's it wouldn't be an error for a lot of shortstops, if that makes sense what I'm saying. But I think that their middle infield is good. They turned two double plays early in the Texas game. In fact, the first and second innings after Texas put the leadoff hitter aboard both innings. One of those was due to the only error, and it was by Caleb Cowley, the third baseman. It was originally ruled a hit, and then they went back and reviewed it and decided it was an error. That kind of tells you how close the play was. It was on a play where he was backpedaling and just didn't fill the ball real cleanly. But uh, I think defensively, they're going to be okay in the infield. It's just, again, this is not the Robert Moore, Jalen Battles, Caden Wallace type infield that they had a year ago. Even Peyton Stovall at first base. I was talking to Bobby Wern, who was a great third baseman at Arkansas on their 2015 College World Series team. And he said, what we had last year was four shortstops playing in the infield with Battles, Moore, Wallace, and Stovall. And he's right. 
And I don't think you have that necessarily this year. I will say this. I think having Brady Slavens back at first base is one of those deals where it helps out your infield a little bit because he is so good at picking the balls out of the dirt over at first. And he's so long. He's six foot three, real long arms. He can help you if you make a little bit of a throw that's offline. And so I think that Slavens, this is the best version of Brady Slavens that we've seen since he's been in Arkansas. Not injured. I think his mind, you know, pro baseball, all this stuff, I don't think is nearly quite as prevalent on his mind as it has been in the past. I think that having him at first is maybe a little bit of a calming influence for this infield. And I think Peyton Stovall is going to be a good second baseman, by the way, too. It's funny you bring that up, the comparison to last year's infield, because I was at the series, Kentucky was playing an Elon this weekend, Elon's 45 minutes from my house. So it was a nice little drive over to be able to see an SEC club. And mm-hmm. I was talking to their SID in the press box about how they've got a similarly a transfer shortstop from the mid-major level named Grant Smith from Incarnate Word, who's a very good defender. And he said, the problem is we had Ryan Ritter last year. And so everything's going to be compared to Ryan Ritter. And so he's going to be unfairly perhaps judged by the way he plays because Ryan Ritter was such a spectacular defender over there. And that's actually a good segue to, I want to wrap up to, to ask you about any other general observations you have around the SEC, whether it's something you saw opening weekend, whether it's something that's just on your mind for the moving forward in the SEC season, what, what's rattling around there as you think about the SEC this year? I got to see three SEC teams and an incoming team with Texas, a fourth one there in Arlington. I was really impressed with what I saw from Missouri. This is a team that people don't expect a lot from Missouri. And so for them to go to Arlington and beat Texas the way they did and to beat TCU, they're the only team that beat you had beaten up on Vanderbilt and beaten up on Arkansas, you know, that that stood out to me. And they played Oklahoma State well, too. I was talking to Dylan Leach after the Texas game. He had the walk-off hit against Texas. He used to be a catcher at Arkansas. This is his first year at Missouri. And I said, how good did it feel to, to bounce back today? I didn't really feel like we bounced back. He said, I felt like we played pretty good against Oklahoma State yesterday. It's just they made a couple more plays and won the game 5-3. to three. Great little side story. You will never see anything, a a scene in college baseball like what you saw Saturday night with Dylan Leach walking off Texas. Played at Arkansas, ninth inning. You've got all the Arkansas fans are in there because that game's running a little bit late. You know how those games go when you're at the same site. And there were probably, I'd say, twelve to 13,000 Arkansas fans, maybe more Saturday night. The announced attendance was 20,000, and Arkansas outnumbered TCU by at least two to one in the stands. And so you've got all these Arkansas fans in the stands. There's Dylan Leach coming up from Missouri, playing Arkansas's biggest rival, Texas, at least historically. And they start calling the Hawks as Dylan Leach comes up to bat. They got a runner at first. He lines a double into the left field corner, and Missouri wins it. That runner comes in from first and scores. Missouri players are out there ripping off his shirt. Arkansas fans are calling the Hogs. Dylan Leach's former teammates and coaches at Arkansas are sitting in this holding area down the right field line cheering him on. And then to make it even neater is after he finishes his celebration with the Missouri team, Dave Van Horn, Matt Hobbs, former teammates, all these guys that he knows, they come up and they're congratulating him. And during this interaction, he gets his College World Series ring from Arkansas last year. And that's really cool. You talk about just a once in a lifetime type moment. That was really neat, I thought, for Dylan Leach. But uh, I was impressed with Missouri. Yeah, I thought Vanderbilt bounced back. And I talked to Tim Corbin after the game on Sunday about it, it didn't look like these pace of play initiatives had much effect on Vanderbilt. And it's because those pitchers just work fast. 
they had games where there were 15 runs in one, there were 20 runs in another. And I think both of those games were under three hours. It's a team that is just really fast and efficient. You didn't see them struggle like Arkansas and TCU and Texas and some of these other teams with those pace of play type deals. Just in the Arkansas TCU game alone, I think I counted five times where either a pitcher was assessed a ball because the pitch clock ran out or a hitter was assessed a strike because they weren't in the batter's box fast enough. And you didn't see that with Vanderbilt any. And I think Vanderbilt's going to be fine. Other observations. One thing that stood out to me is that there wasn't that one. You know, I know Tennessee lost two games out in Arizona, but there wasn't that big upset, I felt like, in a three-game series. Like when Mississippi State lost to Long Beach State last year, at the time it was considered a huge upset. There weren't any of those types of upsets in, in the first week, which I thought probably shows you a little bit about the consistency of the SEC teams. Tennessee losing the game. I know they didn't lose their second game, to, what was it, mid-April, late April last year, but I don't think they challenged themselves early in the year quite so much last year like they're going to do this year. I remember at one point last year, Rhode Island and Iona were like a combined 0-24, and, and Tennessee had won a couple of three-game series over them. So I think Tennessee is going to be fine. I'll be interested to see if Puna gets eligible or when he does and I think you add him to that lineup and it changes things quite a bit for the walls. I'm with you on Tennessee. Mark Etheridge and I talked about this in our weekend recap podcast. Not only was it two close losses to two good teams, Arizona and Grand Canyon are both teams that but the official stance of D1 baseball is their regional caliber teams and also Grand Canyon, then this is their this is their right and they had reasons to do it, but they ended up facing Tennessee did all of Grand Canyon's good arms. They started their Grand Canyon started a, basically a Sunday guy on Friday. They threw their Saturday guy against Tennessee, a guy named Connor Markle, who's a very good arm. And then Daniel Avidia, who's their best prospect and would be their Friday guy typically, was coming back from a minor injury, no, no big deal, but they're trying to work him back a little slowly. So they just used him in the bullpen. So yeah. they ended up facing the two best arms Grand Canyon has and came on the road, mind you, not a neutral environment, a road environment, and Grand Canyon draws really well and is a raucous crowd. So that was just a tough weekend against some good teams. So I'm not overly worried there. Vanderbilt too, uh, they had a little bit, they had some bullpen issues early in their time last weekend, but I think that gets sorted out. I also think the guys they're really leaning on pitched well out of the bullpen, Schultz and Maldonado and the freshman Dukanich. It was some of the other guys that struggled more. And I think with this Vanderbilt team, especially on the position player side. Maybe there aren't the names there that there have been in the past in terms of here's a big prospect on the position player side and here's a big prospect. But I think this is a, a grittier, more well-rounded team. I think it's a team that's going to maybe win some games. Teams the last couple of years were, were maybe dropping that you wondered how they dropped them. I just think it's a team that's going to be a little bit more hard-nosed and, and grittier is kind of the word I keep coming back to. So. The only, the only truly, you mentioned no no upsets, and I think I was impressed with Alabama uh, just really handling business against Richmond, not messing around at all. And Richmond's not a terrible team. Like They're, they're not an A-10 favorite, but they're, they're an above 500 team in the A-10. It's not UMass Lowell, for example. South Carolina really handled UMass Lowell. That was no huge surprise. Richmond can play a little bit, and Alabama just didn't mess around with them at all. So I'm always, yes, it's hard to take away big picture things from series like that, but I'm always impressed when a team just never for one second lets the inferior opponent think that they're in the game. The counterpoint to that, of course, is Mississippi State dropping that game against VMI on Saturday. And I went back and rewatched that yesterday because I didn't get a chance to see it live. And it was just tough. A lot of trouble finding the strike zone. Casey Hunt, their starter that day, I think two plus innings, but walked five or six guys and wasn't really close to the strike zone for a lot of his outing. Luke Hancock behind the plate, 
I don't think he did anything all that wrong necessarily, but they stole 11 bases on him and the pitchers. I just think VMI was just committed to, we're just going to create chaos out here and the game just spun out of control (laughs) for Mississippi state, honestly. So I'll see them this weekend against Arizona state, obviously Arizona state, a lot more talented than VMI. I'm also going to see Ole Miss and Maryland this weekend. And I came in more excited to see that series. And now I'm not so sure that Arizona state, Mississippi state, isn't actually a more interesting series to figure out what state is making a jump in competition for sure. Yeah. I'll say the thing about Mississippi state is that it was a close game. Wasn't it about the sixth, seventh inning on Sunday, they pulled away and ended up winning that. And so I thought that was pretty impressive for them because Seems like it's still a pretty young Mississippi State team that is trying to find its footing after the way they played last year. No doubt. And they've got a lot of mid-major transfers that are still getting used to playing in front of 11,000 people at Duty Noble, right? And dealing with adversity in front of a crowd that has grown restless. There, there's a pressure to that I think is new for those guys who are moving up a level. So certainly at week two looks like a big one around the SEC. So looking forward to that and then taking some more stuff away from that. But for now, Matt, I appreciate you joining us talking Arkansas Razorbacks, their two in one weekend at Globe Life. I certainly anticipate us catching up with you a little bit later this season. I appreciate you coming on. All right. Appreciate it, Joe. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for this episode of the Highway to Hoover podcast, a production of D1Baseball.com and SEC Extra. And as always, Presented by Brock's Gap Brewing Company in Hoover, Alabama. Looking forward to spending some time at the SEC tournament there. Hope you are as well. And if you're local in the Birmingham metro area, head on out to Brock's Gap. They've got all kinds of events and food trucks, live music, all kinds of stuff out there to enjoy in a family atmosphere. We hope to see you out there in May. That's it for Highway to Hoover. Talk to you next time.